0: It's always good to turning to God in our weakness, asking him to speak. And we'll see how he loves to do that in the passage. We'll pray that God will help us to hear and understand. Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you for the truth of that song we sang, that Jesus is the king and the ruler over everything. And yet, God, there are times where he doesn't really feel like that. And we pray that you will speak to us in the Bible tonight to show us it's always true. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you could turn to Acts chapter 12 and we're looking at the whole chapter so I'll make a start. Chapter 12 verse 1. About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. (coughs) And so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that, that was be- what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard... They came to the iron gate leading to the city. He had opened for them of its own accord and they went out and along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate they said to her you are out of your mind but she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying it is his angel but Peter continued knocking and when they opened they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. <clears throat> now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea and the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man immediately an angel of the lord struck him down because he did not give god the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last but the word of the god but the word of god increased and multiplied Well, that's the part of Bible we're going to look at today, and uh, I wonder if it uh, comes uh, to us with a good question, which is: uh, Have you ever felt a bit flat because God's winning in some places, but not in our place? Have we spent uh, a four-year period in our little church life visiting, we counted up this afternoon, 5,000 homes and there's been growth and yet not 5,000 homes worth of growth and look around and say has a lot of effort and little fruit and it makes you wonder doesn't it does this Christian thing really work is taking the gospel out working all that well for us And when you look at how the country as a whole looks at Bible-believing Christians, they see us as a bit of a joke, and, well, it makes you wonder whether really at best you should, or at worst you should give up, or at best, at the very least, you should shut up. Because no one's interested in you or in your God. And if you're coming from... uh, an outsider, and you look at this little church group today and you wonder, do I really want to join this group? They're a bit odd, they're slightly out of date. Do I really want to be part of this Jesus thing? So you can feel like that, can't you? That actually the gospel isn't really working where we are all that well. Other places it might be, but not here. And it might have felt a little bit like that in uh, Jerusalem. And in uh, Jerusalem, it would seem that uh, things were quite slow, quite discouraging. But in other places, it was all exciting. So we know, if we were here last week, that we looked at Acts chapter 10, and we saw how Cornelius became a Christian, and he and his whole family, all his friends, were there to become Christians with him. Great progress. That was chapter 10, and then Chapter 11, if you just go back to the bit immediately before chapter 12, you find that there's this new church that started up called Antioch, and it's very exciting there. It's going to get even more exciting when we come back to the new year. We're going to stop Acts 12 today, but next year when we come back to Acts chapter 13, you see that Antioch is the sort of NASA space um, HQ of the Christian church. There'll be missions going out everywhere. And even here, at the very start, as Antioch comes together, you see that this is a place that is very exciting. It's the first place that people were called Christians, in verse 26. Now, that's very interesting, because that name tells a lot. You see, previously, if you wanted to call Christians who were around Jerusalem, you'd say they were Jews. And if you want to call Christians around Cornelius and his church, you'd say Gentile. But now there's a mixture of Jews and Gentiles getting together in this one place called Antioch, and the old labels won't work anymore because they're completely mixed, and therefore we need a whole new name to describe the people who are getting together. So they started talking, calling them Christians, because Christos, Christ, was always on their lips. So the word Christian is not just a name for a Jesus follower. It's the name of a person who's a Jesus follower with other very mixed, different all sorts of Jesus follows. Christian is the name you give to people you can't give any other name to because the groups are so varied and joined. And it's a mixed church. It's also a real church. I say it's a real church because when you look at the end of Acts chapter 11, you see that uh, they are wanting to be generous There's a famine that's been foretold, and so verse 29 of chapter 11, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now, that shows that they are real Christians. Remember, when people became Christians in Jerusalem in Acts chapter two, they were very generous to each other. They looked after each other. Now here, it's no longer in Jerusalem, it's way past that, but they have the same marks of reality that they had back then. It's very interesting isn't it? You'd expect uh, Luke to say that uh, here are people who are genuine Christians just like the Holy Spirit, uh, just like the the, the Christians in uh, Jerusalem because they had the Holy Spirit. They'd be baptized by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem therefore the big deal is that they're baptized by the Holy Spirit in Antioch. But that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying you want to know the real Christians? Well, I'm not going to talk about the Holy Spirit this time. I'm going to tell you they were generous in Jerusalem and they're generous in Antioch. That's the mark of a real Christian. Generosity has begun. It's a real church. But come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem things are very different. We've read the chapter that follows, chapter 12. And you know how it starts. It starts with James dead. Peter in prison, and Herod's winning. And let me tell you, Herod is uh, the wrong person to win. So we look at uh, Herod's family, and they are really a family of Hitler's. If uh, you know the uh, line of Herod, uh, you know that it's his his granddad who was the Christmas Herod who killed babies. It was his uncle who was at the trial of Jesus mocking him. And now it is uh, this Herod who is horrible and uh, is part of that baby killing, Jesus mocking, Christian hating family. And he grew up with uh, great privilege, so he was able to do whatever he wanted. He grew up in uh, Rome and uh, his best mates as he was growing up his childhood powers were the two previous emperors uh, one was uh, Caligula and the other was uh, Claudius and uh, they were wonderfully generous to him uh, they gave him uh, property after property after territory after territory after territory uh, they uh, just were generous to him and increased his power and the last one gave him Judea and with it the title King of the Jews and now his boxed set was complete this was the prize he really wanted and he was a man who obviously uh, came from a great privilege in that way but that was a privilege that also disqualified him in some ways in Jewish eyes because he'd grown up in pagan territory and that didn't do him any favors back at home. And also, if you go back further enough in his family, he comes from the, the sort of tribe of Edom. And the Edomites were traditional enemies of God's people. And so they were suspicious of him for that reason too. So when he arrived in Jerusalem to be the king, he was doing everything he could to be accepted by the people, by the Jews. And so therefore, he went into the temple every single day. He read the Bible, which is what the, the Old Testament tells you Jewish kings have to do when they start power. And so he was ticking all the boxes to make himself accepted as their king. And it was a wonderful coincidence, because just at that time, the Jewish authorities were getting worried about these Christians. I've been worried about, him bef- be- worried about them before, but now... Jewish Christians are mixing with Gentile Christians. That's a new development, and that is something that the Jews were just not going to tolerate. Something had to be done. And so therefore, because they now had easy access to their king who was coming to the temple every day, they clearly had a word with him and said, look, you've got to go and cause chaos in the control room of the church. And so in verse three, he has James arrested and beheaded. And uh, he immediately saw his popularity ratings go up. In verse three, he saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he arrested Peter as well. And again, (coughs) notice the timing. It's Passover time. The city is full of pilgrims. This is going to be maximum exposure for the king who wants to show off his new Jewish credentials. Here's the time just at a Passover time you're not allowed to kill anybody so you've got to wait until the day after Passover before you can do that and we are just about to come the day after Passover here's a man who's got everything going his way and he needs friends because, well, his uh, claim to the throne has got some legitimacy issues and he's doing everything he can to find acceptance very very powerful king very very powerfully motivated but you then see that actually Luke is telling us that there might just someone be more powerful than him and the next king that we're introduced to is effectively King Jesus you see them praying to him in verse 5 you wouldn't pray unless you expected the person you're praying to to be able to be senior enough to do something with your prayer and say so in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And as they pray, you can understand that they would have some doubts about what might happen to their prayer, because it seems that all the plans of God were unravelling. If God is allowing his key disciples, James and now Peter, to be arrested and removed One by one, then you've got to say that God's plans aren't really having such a good time after all. And yet the reality is that God's plans are working out just as He said. If you know the story of uh, Jesus, you know that He told James that uh, He would die. Remember, James and John had a mother with sharp elbows and career ambitions for her children and she wanted one to sit on the right hand and one on the left of Jesus when he came in glory and Jesus said no I can't give you those places but I can promise you that you will suffer as I suffer you will die as I die so James in that sense had a prophecy over his head and now that prophecy has been fulfilled. And Peter too actually has a prophecy over his head. I think I put in my notes, James's prophecy over his head was Mark chapter 10 verses 38 and 39. And Peter had a prophecy over his head that he would die to glorify God in John chapter 21 verse 19. Both men with the prophecy over their heads. But on this occasion, Peter is released. And God makes it look so easy. I look at Herod, and he's gone OTT with his security, hasn't he? Four squads of soldiers. That's probably the entire police, <coughs> police budget of Bark and Dach- To guard one non-violent prisoner. I mean, Peter isn't S.A.S. trained in escape and evasion, to get this amount of security around him. And Peter's just completely, he might have been a big lad if he was a fisherman, I'll grant you that, but really, the one experience he's had of uh, combat, they put a sword in his hand and he had a great swipe and he missed the person he was aiming for completely, apart from getting a bit of his ear. Complete incompetent when he comes to anything military. And yet, here he is under such a great guard. And he's not exactly the sort of young soldier who is fit and willing to wake up and go. In fact, you have to see that the angel's got to give an almighty prod in verse 7 to get him up. So he pokes him in the ribs to wake him up in the first place. And as he wakes up, he gives Peter the two golden lessons of the SAS escape and uh, evade manual. Lesson number one in verse seven, get up. And lesson number two in verse eight, put your clothes on. And so he's led, and he's led not again with uh, great alertness um, to all the dangers. He's in, da- d- in a daze, he thinks he's having a dream, and he just goes through the guards one by one. It's classic jedi stuff if you've watched star wars he goes through the the guards the angel says these are not the droids you're looking for and he just goes straight through until finally gets this huge door in verse 10 now this door is built to withstand attack from the outside an army could come at it and it would stand and yet it turns out in verse 10 to be the first automatic door. He walks up to it, and it springs open of its own accord. Here is God at work. And to make the point that this is a powerful God at work, you get two little scenes to make the point in different ways. The first way you see that God's powerful work is with a very weak church. You can see the Christians in verse 5. They're praying. It's the only thing that they get right. Because when Peter discovers that his jailbreak isn't a dream, remember, he's still in a city where he's a condemned man, and any minute now, the alarm's going to go off in the prison, and all the soldiers are going to come pouring out looking for him. So he goes to the place where he knows the Christians will be there, and... He knocks on the door and uh, Rhoda comes and recognizes him but leaves him outside. This is the second time Peter's on the wrong side of a locked door. Okay, Herod's locked him in and the Christians are locking him out. And the pressure's mounting, isn't it? Because guess where the secret police are going to come? The first they hear about Peter's escape and Peter's out there and the gate is shut And uh, Rhoda goes in, and they aren't happy with her, are they? Uh, Don't be stupid. Uh, You're mad. Uh, Let's get back to praying. Actually, they don't get back to praying. They have time for yet another discussion on another theory about why it might just seem to be Peter. You know, it's just his angel. And after they discuss Rhoda's mental health they're now going to discuss this and there's Peter knocking all the time let me in now you wouldn't think a sorry bunch like that would be any match for Herod's great strength backed up by the Roman Empire and yet you have Herod with all his might on one hand and Christians weakly praying on the other but when you see Christians are weak and weak enough to pray then you can always expect something big and in Acts chapter 1 they prayed in Acts chapter 2 Pentecost happens Acts chapter 5 they are rested, they pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit shakes the whole place and gives them the answer to their prayer and it's a great expression of weakness when Christians pray and it leads to a great demonstration of God's strength when Christians pray and it happens here the prayers are answered not because God has got any great plans for Peter because at the end of this chapter Peter pretty much disappears off to see completely. You won't see Peter. It's not like God's saving him for some great feat in the future that Peter is now going to accomplish for him. It's just God showing off his greatness because he is great. And so he uses we Christians to show his greatness. Equally he uses this majestic Herod. And he's the one that Luke describes next. He goes to... Tyre and Sidon which let me tell you are very very significant international cities these are places where people have real influence and authority and control and yet Herod is powerful enough to cut off their food supply think Putin with his hand over the gas button able to press it and put the whole of Europe into darkness if they don't know their place. And so there it is, Herod is there and uh, you know that actually you are someone great and that you've arrived when people start bribing your staff. That's what they do in verse 20, they persuade Blastus, the king's chamberlain, to put a word in for them. And the great day arrives in verse 21, and it's very interesting that actually it's not just Luke who writes history about this day. There's a Jewish-Roman historian called Josephus, and he gives you different details to what Luke has written that shows that it's not a fixed account, but a true one. And in that account, Josephus Uh, says that uh, uh, Herod was uh, dressed in garments who were made holy or which were made holy of silver and of a texture truly wonderful which would have shone so brightly in the morning sun that people hailed him as a god. He was dazzling. (coughs) But Josephus goes on to say, upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And because Luke says he didn't give the glory to God, Josephus describes how Herod doubled up in pain. Uh, He was uh, clutching his stomach, he was in agony with uh, what was going on in there. And he had to be carried back to the palace immediately. And the next five days he spent in agony and then he died. Luke tells us he was eaten by worms. Which you might say, well, there you are, you see, that shows the Bible can't be trusted. Very interesting. Because if you look at verse 23 closely, you see that he was eaten by worms and then he died. I'd normally expect it to be the other way around, that you die and you go into your grave and then the, the worms eat you. Here the worms eat him first. And very interestingly, there's a doctor, Rendell Short, who was Professor of Surgery at Bristol University, who wrote a book called The Bible in Modern Medicine. And uh, Dr. Uh, Short, actually he was a professor, so I should call him Professor Short, said that many people in that area harbour intestinal worms that can form a tight ball and cause acute intestinal obstruction and he says that might explain Herod's death now his fair doctor Luke may not have known exactly what was going on in his tummy but he understood that he wasn't just worm food in the grave fascinating isn't it when Mm -hmm. what Josephus tells you comes up into the Bible and with modern science showing you that actually this is true yeah, Herod is powerful but he ends up just like any other man and there's no one in doubt who is the stronger king at the end of this yes he kills James but there's no doubt whose army is left weaker as Herod loses men by the squads as they're taken out to be executed for letting Peter escape why? because Jesus is the Psalm 2 King. If you know the Psalm 2 King, you know that when the great and mighty gather against him, Herod, with all the backing of Rome, the Psalm 2 King laughs, because they are just so small. And so the chapter that started, remember I told you, with James dead, Peter in prison, Herod winning, finishes in verse 23 with Herod dead. Peter released and the word of God winning. And that's how the king wins. Now I hope as I come to uh, make that landing from the passage that uh, this will encourage you if you're not yet a Christian, And you're put off following Jesus because Christians look so weak and they look like they will lose. It might look that way, but you take it from, from, from Acts chapter 12, this is the winning side. And what seems to be strong will actually die under God's judgment. That is not the side to be on. And so therefore, trust what God's word says. And then in the words of verse 23, ask the God's word, sorry, in the words of verse 24, ask that God's word will be believed in you and increase and multiply in you as you grow your confidence that this God isn't as weak as external evidence might seem. Second uh, uh, group might be a group that's been to church lots. And what might we learn? But well, I think it's helpful, isn't it, for us to learn that God works in weakness, not in success. Largely, we're told out in the church today that if you're on God's side, then every good thing conceivable will happen to you. The prosperity gospel is the promise of money and wealth and increase in that way or the health and miracle gospel will tell you that uh, you will never be sick without a cure there will be promises that I'm making that actually everything will be better tomorrow if only you trust today and the difficulty is if you're going to go down that line you are going to have to be very selective in your reading of the Bible you're going to have to airbrush sections like what happened to James mm-hmm. God does heal but we do want to point out that actually his people suffer yes Peter does live in this passage there is success if you want to call it that but Peter too will be put to death Peter and James had prophecies over their heads and they both died everyone that you care about in Acts and read about in Acts will die this is the reality of what it is to follow Jesus and every single Christian has a prophecy over their head as well because you know in John chapter 15 verse 8 Jesus said if they hated me they're going to hate you too and Paul the apostle said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 I think both are in your notes that anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted don't get the wrong idea there is a prophecy over our heads God's plans will be worked out but in the working out he will win success will come but it may not be what you experience if you become a Christian and if you Uh, follow Jesus (coughs) so it is an important thing to work out how are you going to handle suffering because there is a big question here about suffering isn't there especially I would imagine for James's mum imagine James's mum having a cup of coffee with Peter's mum why is it that God let your son live and my son die and in the end there's no answer to that is there apart from say that both men in their debts were promised by Jesus that they would glorify God. And what we do know for sure is, although we don't have the answer, that now James and his mum, Peter and her, his mum, will all be in the presence of Jesus, and they would all turn around from facing him to face us in this moment in time and say, trust God, he does win. And he did glorify James in his death. And he did glorify Peter in his death. And he will glorify himself. However, death comes to you. And make his name larger as that happens. Trust that he will win. Thirdly, what happens if you're a real believer and... There's a message here that you want to take home. My um, uh, uh, simple repeat of what Luke is always telling us is stay confident. Don't give up and don't shut up. It may be that you suffer lots of discouragement, but God's word will win. And it is well worth remembering that rulers might seem powerful, but they are just men and in the end the people who will write your ending will not be those who have all the powers who will claim to have the power of life and death. No one has that power over you if you're a real believer. No one can touch you because it's not in their hands. God will choose who will die for him and who will live for him. He is in control, he has the power, and they are very, very small. When I first uh, started the church job, we lived in Kendal, and uh, we had this small little house, and it had a kitchen, and right outside the kitchen was a little yard, uh, hardly a garden. It was just a, a square bit of concrete. But uh, our son David was two, it was big enough for him. And when he got under his mother's feet in the kitchen while she was cooking, she'd call me down and I'd have to go out into the yard and play football with him. And we had this game we called Goals. And what would happen was David was a toddler, he was two and he'd sort of be dodging around his feet and I'd just go taking the ball one way and then the other and I'd keep scoring goals. And after a while he'd get fed up and uh, start uh, creating and the neighbors were listening so I gave him the ball and then let him score a goal. But he took so long about it that I quickly got bored with that and I took the ball off him (laughs) and then I started running around him and scoring goals again. Now, I'm saying that to you not to show that I was a cruel dad. (laughs) I was teaching my son how to be competitive. But I'm really wanting to show you what God does with rulers and he lets them score goals. But when he wants to, he takes the ball off them and starts scoring goals himself. Now, let me tell you, he became competitive and he's now a very, very good footballer. I could see that day coming, and I cannot play football ever. I just about make it in the reserves of the second uh, church team, uh, if a church has a team, And, and therefore no one ever wants me to play on their side. Um, and so David was very quickly able to overtake me, in fact I stopped playing football with him the following year um, (coughs) before I lost I started losing again but uh, so the analogy doesn't work all the way um, as far as uh, David and being a ruler and God being the winner but certainly at two years old the illustration works and the girls went in And David was allowed only from time to time. And the rulers are small, the size of a two-year-old playing a great harking oaf. And the way the Christians recognize the smallness of rulers, and you might even say shrink the size of rulers, is through prayer asking God to score his goals to take the ball off these feeble puny little opponents and to show how much he can win and so prayer is our way of shrinking the opposition that's what happened in this passage the prayer didn't just simply lead to the release of Peter It ended up to Herod shrinking in size, feeding the appetite of worms. And we can shrink our rulers as we pray. And we pray to him not for our personal safety, we pray to him because verse 24 is the desire of any adult Christian in situations of pressure that in this time, the Word of God will increase and multiply and more people will become Christians as a result of the troubles that God's people are in. So in suffering, keep praying for that to happen. Stay confident and pray that God will shrink his opposition and win increasingly the goals that he has in mind to triumph in. Well, let's pray that God will help us to hold on to these three things. Uh, I'll leave the notepad up so you can keep them in front of you while you're praying. Just take a minute to ask, what does God really want you to go home with having learnt today from Acts chapter 12? Pray that God will have you on his side and that his word will grow in you. Pray that God will give you confidence when things go wrong that God works in weakness. And pray that God will help you to stay confident and to shrink the opposition with this special weapon he's given you to do that with, the weapon of prayer. Let's have a moment of quiet. We'll pray for a minute. And then I'll close in prayer. Well, our I mean, has gone, so let's pray our heavenly king. We do want to ask that you would please help us not to see with what the eyes see, that is external weakness. <coughs> but Lord, we pray that you would please help us to trust what your word tells us to be true and that is that you will always win please help us to be willing to suffer there is a prophecy over our heads please help us not to uh, think that things are going wrong when uh, fulfilment happens and we pray you please help us to stay faithful even when we are persecuted Mm. And Lord, we pray that you would please help us not to give up and certainly not to shut up. And instead, when suffering comes, when opposition seems huge, please help us to turn to you, the true and living God, who hears your people, who shrinks your enemies, and who continues achieving your purposes. Please, would you help us? to see that happen on our estate and in our families and for the glory of your name. We pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.